at the passage in Matthew. So if you want to go to Matthew uh, 27, we're going to be looking at uh, verses uh, 50 to 56 there, Matthew 27. Glad you're all here with us. I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you, and uh, we can share it together. I want to begin this way. Uh, God has given us many ways in this life where we can show that we really trust Him. We can demonstrate our trust in God in lots of different ways. We, number one, trust Him every day for our very life. We know that without God's decree, we wouldn't last another second. We wouldn't last very long at all. We would just expire and die. They trust God every day, we as God's people, for our food. We trust him for our shelter. We don't take for granted our clothing, our health, and then especially our eternal life. It's funny how we can trust God with eternal life and then sometimes slip and not trust him for everyday things like we should. One of the ways that we trust God is by giving the top portion of our gifts. And I'm talking about things like tithes and offerings uh, that God has given us first. For instance, we tithe off the top of what we make. In the Old Testament, there was a feast—not uh, a, not a thief—a feast where people took the first of their harvest, called the first fruits, and they brought it to God and they gave it along with a blood sacrifice and then a drink offering. It would be like you when you went through the field on the first swath, whether it's in wheat or a combine of corn. And you got to the end of the field and you said, you know what, that one belongs to God. So you empty it out in the truck and you take the elevator and you say, uh, give this to the ministry, give this to our church, whatever you would do with that. And that's the, that's the first thing you do. You don't even look at the gauge to find out how much yield this field's going to make. It doesn't matter. Whatever is the first of the crop, you're going to give it to God. It'd be kind of like that. And that is we do it before we know what, what the yield is going to be, whether we are going to be able to pay our bills or we're going to be able to sell some quickly enough to pay our bills. We do it because we want to show God that he comes first. We do it because we trust what God has in store for us, whether it is plenty or in want. We go by faith. It is akin to what we read in Leviticus 23, 10 to 14, about the Feast of first fruits. Now, you can go there with me if you want, uh, but I also am going to read it for you. Uh, Leviticus 23, 10 to 14. Remember, this describes the first fruit offering that they would give in the Old Testament. And we've been talking about, do we give uh, the first of what we have to God as well? Well, it says this, uh, picking it up in verse 9. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap a harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So we're thinking of a bundle of wheat or a bundle of some kind of grain, and we would take that to the, to the temple to God. He shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh uh, for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you are also going to offer a male lamb of one year old without defect for a burnt offering to Yahweh. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering of fire to Yahweh for a soothing aroma with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine, which would be about a gallon. Until this same day, until you have brought it in to offer to your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain, 
nor new growth. It is to be perpetual statute throughout all your generations in all your dwelling places. And the idea is this. What I want to do is I want to show God faith. And when I go out to my field, I don't gather it all together and then look at my finances and look what I'm going to sell it for. I'm just going to say, God, I trust you. And I want to give you the first of what I take off of this field for you. And it doesn't matter what happens in the future. I'm just going to do that. And I know you're going to take care of me. And I trust you to do that. And so God does. I want to go now to Matthew 27, 50 to 56. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And this is when Jesus is dying on the cross, according to the book of Matthew anyway, and that's where we're at here. And then we want to talk a little bit about uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked a little bit Friday night on Good Friday about the death of Jesus Christ. And then this morning we are going to talk a little bit about not only his death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The issue is going to be this. Do you really believe that somebody can die, that we can bury them in a coffin in the ground, six feet under, put a cement or a bronze vault over them, and that on resurrection day, God will raise them to new life, and they will actually be alive, they'll actually have a new body, and they will live forever. Do we really believe that? Well, I've never seen a resurrection before, but I want you to know I believe it, and I believe it based on the testimony in the Word of God. So let's begin in verse 50 of Matthew 27, where it says this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. What I want you to think about is that they rolled big rocks in front of the tombs. And I think what he's talking about is those rocks on those tombs are splitting apart. In other words, they're opening up. The tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after, this, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, which would be Jerusalem, and they appeared to many people. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earth quake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the son of Zebedee. Now, the rest of the text goes on to talk about the burial of Jesus Christ and after the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that story very well. This one, I'm not so sure we know that well at this point in the uh, resurrection uh, teachings of the word of God. So I wanted to spend a little time on that this morning. Uh, Another reason I'm picking this is because when you've preached Easter sermons to the same group for 28 years, it's hard to find a different text, okay? So uh, this is why I'm in this place, because it's also important. In verse 50, if you have your bulletin, you can follow along there. It says that Jesus cried out again in a great voice, and then he died. So he's been through all the torture of the cross. He's been through all the uh, beatings of the cross. He's uh, been nailed on the cross. He's hung there for quite a while. For three hours while he was there, the, art, the uh, sky turned black and dark. And so it was uh, kind of a miserable time for him, uh, to say the least. And one has to wonder how Jesus could go through all that he had been through leading up to the cross 
and still have enough energy to say anything with his voice at this point, but he does. The people around him were waiting to see if he was going to call on Elijah to come and save him and come down and bring him down off the cross. They thought he was calling for Elijah, and I really don't know why because it's very plain what Jesus had said. If you go back to verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he said these words, which sound a little bit like Elijah, but it was simply, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what it sounded like in Hebrew was this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Eli. Sounds a little bit like Elijah, but Jesus wasn't calling for Elijah. Jesus had no intention of getting off that cross, but they were waiting to see, what's going to happen with this guy? Is he so important that Elijah will really come and get him off of this cross? Well, Jesus said nothing about that at all, what the people's comments were. They were probably expecting to say something about it, but when he cried out for his last time, that is not what they heard. Now, we're going to check a few places as we go through here in the Gospel of Luke. And the first one is chapter 23 and verse 46. Twenty-three forty-six. There it is recorded what Jesus said for the last time from the cross. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so he was dead at that point. And that's what's going to happen here, although Matthew doesn't record that. Crying out so they could all clearly hear him, he gave up his spirit. And in Jesus' day, this phrase, give up your spirit, was an idiomatic way of saying that simply meant a person had died. So if somebody gave up their spirit, that meant that they had passed away, they had died. In Jesus' day, everybody knew that. The Jews, as we do, believe that the death of a person is when the spirit leaves the body. So whatever else happens to a person, when the spirit leaves the body, then that is true death. Indeed, this is our definition of death. Uh, James 2.26 says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. If you have a body and you have no spirit, you just have a body. If you have somebody that says they have faith in God, but it doesn't show in their life and they don't produce works to show that God is running their life, then that's a dead faith. That's not a real faith. Uh, so that's how he illustrates it for us in James. There is ample proof that Jesus was literally, physically dead. And for that, I want to go to John 19, verse 34. John 19 In verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So there was a separation of his blood, and that was a sign that he was really dead. These people killed people for a job. Their, their job was to uh, put people on crosses. They know what a dead person is, and they know how a dead person is dead. And this guy, Jesus, was really dead. And he didn't pull some kind of trick on the cross and then lay in some kind of a coma for three days and then get up again. No, he's dead. This was also uh, wrapped and placed in a tomb 
uh, just two hours later. He was dead, verse 51. When Jesus Christ died over in the temple, now Jesus died and was crucified just outside of Jerusalem, but there's a temple uh, not far from where he was killed, and that temple veil uh, stood in, in the worship center of Israel, and the earth responded to Jesus' death with great power and an earthquake, so two things are happening. There's a veil in the temple, a giant curtain, and it was torn top to bottom. And then there was an earthquake, and rocks are splitting apart, and tombs are opening up when Jesus died. Okay, now, what we need to think about is, and there's some uh, people that disagree, but I happen to believe that the veil in the temple, which was torn from top to bottom, was the one that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So if I were to walk into the temple, I'd be on the east side of the temple walking west. I would go up the temple steps, and I would come into the holy place, and in the holy place, that's where priests would come. They'd burn incense at the table of showbread and all that stuff. But then there was a, a, another curtain. There's a curtain at the door, another curtain, and that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. What's in the holy of holies? The Ark of the Covenant. And this, the uh, statues of the cherubim that, that overshadowed the earthly throne of God. Because earth is God's footstool and Jesus reigned, the mercy seat is where God is a symbol, has a symbol of his reigning on earth, his power as, as the king of kings. And I think it was that curtain that was ripped from top to bottom, bottom. I don't know how big it was. I don't know if we have a measurement of that, but I know it was a big curtain. And, you know, when, you're got, when you have a big curtain, you're, you know, small. A person would probably rip it from the bottom up, but it didn't happen that way. It's like God reached down and grabbed the curtain and ripped it open. Why would that be a big deal? <laughs> because Jesus just died, and God did something that uh, we don't do. We don't just walk in, even as priests, even if we're assigned that, that day, we don't walk in, and nobody, nobody walks up and peeks behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies. Because the Bible said if anybody goes back there except the high priest and that on the day of atonement or Yom Kippur, uh, God would strike them dead. So you don't mess with that. You don't go back there. The high priest in his day when it was time to go back there and offer the sacrifice in front of the earthly throne of God, he would go in there and they would tie a big rope around his ankle so that if God happened to strike him dead because he didn't take care of his sin through his sacrifice that day the way he should and he wasn't right before God, they'd wonder, how are we going to get him out of there? We can't leave a dead man in there. So in case something happened, they would pull him out from underneath the curtain and they could take him away. Now it's wide open. Any priest that walked in could instantly see the Ark of the Covenant and the holy place of God. The Holy of Holies. What's the deal with that? Why is that supposed to be important to us? Well, if we look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, Hebrews 4, 16. The writer of Hebrews explains some of this. He says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. See, in the Holy of Holies is the ark with the mercy seat. The mercy means compassion and grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not just the high priest can go back there anymore. You and I as believers, as Christians, can go right into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, 
Uh, they could not celebrate the peace offering with God, saying, God, I'm now at peace with you, unless they went through all the sacrifices for their sins to get to, get to that point of the peace offering. And so they had whole burnt offerings and burnt offerings and wave offerings and grain offerings and blood offerings and all these different offerings. Depending on how sinful you were from the last time you were there, you may have a lot of sacrifices to do. Finally, after all those sacrifices, you could declare, I am at peace with God. And the way I did that was I did the peace offering. And part of that I got to keep. And I got to roast it and eat it with my family and eat it with my friends. And the idea is I'm also eating it with God. Because I'm at peace with God. I wasn't until I did my sacrifices. Now I am. By the way, it's all by faith. And now what you did today, you belong to Jesus Christ. You just walked in the place where Jesus is worshipped. Today we're going to celebrate communion, if you care to join us for that. And we're going, to, we're going to do communion, and that is a peace offering. That's what it was about. And we're just going to declare, God, I'm at peace with you. I didn't do any sacrifices. Anybody here sacrifice a, a calf or anything before they came? No? Anybody sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a scapegoat or anything like that? No. We just accepted that Jesus died in our place on the cross, and we've been given eternal life. We just accepted that, and we walk in, and we get to celebrate peace with God. No sacrifice. No bloodletting on our part. Nothing except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it's fellowship, and we can approach God just like the high priest could, except without fear. And we can get help there. And that's what God wants us to do. The terror was an unnatural terror from top to bottom. I think it was the Lord himself who made it terror. And then there's this earthquake, and also uh, there was a response to the death of Christ in the earth. It caused certain rocks to split apart. Uh, I've only been in a few earthquakes, nothing ever very big, but I understand they can get pretty nasty. Uh, after being in Moab, Utah, I wouldn't want to be out there with those rocks in a big earthquake. Uh, but I can't imagine splitting a rock in half because of an earthquake. I don't know how that happens, but it did. And these rocks were at least inclusive of some of the great big stones that were rolled in front of some of the tombs of some of the Old Testament saints who were believers and had died. And uh, these would have been Old Testament people that put their faith in God for their salvation, not, ne not Jesus Christ, because at that point, he hadn't died yet uh, for, for anybody. He's in the process of that. He's in the tomb. He resurrects, and then uh, something very amazing happens in verses 52 to 54. Dead saints arose who visited Jerusalem, and the centurion expressed his faith in Jesus. Look at that. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had died, fallen asleep, were raised. Get that? Jesus Christ is killed on the cross. The earth responds with darkness and an earthquake, and the earth responds by, by just trembling. And what happens is some stones are broken in front of tombs of people who were believers, and now it says, those who were dead, who were believers, are standing up, walking out of their tombs, or crawling out, for some tombs that weren't as expensive, and they crawl out and they stand up. They are alive, they have a body, people will recognize them. And it says, coming out of their tombs, after his resurrection, because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, and now these follow him, they entered the city, and they appeared to many. 
So the earthquake helped in opening up the tombs. Many bodies of the righteous dead were disgorged from those tombs. And think about this. You know what happened in a tomb in those days. They would put somebody on a shelf. They would let their their material bodies rot away. And when it was finally all gone, they would take the bones of that person, put them in a box called an ossuary, and put it on a lid. And then if you were wealthy enough and you had a big enough tomb, uh, we need to prepare you know, the slab for the next dead relative. We take that ossuary and we stack it up in the corner. And the whole family's over there. Sometimes if they're wealthy, they put the name of the person on the outside of the ossuary. That means some of those dead saints were already in the box. All that was left was bones. And God resurrected them. And they had bodies. And they went to town and saw people. Can you imagine? Grandpa, I thought you were dead. And, and I almost said Millie, but we have a little girl named Millie. And so-and-so, you're alive. How'd that happen? What is going on here? Their physical bodies were raised from the dead. Noel was telling me about talking to a kindergartner about the resurrection of the synagogue's, uh, synagogue official's little daughter, where Jesus said, Talitha kum, little girl, come, get up. And it was only his disciples and her parents that were in the room. And guess what happened? The little girl got up. And Noel was telling this story, and the kindergartner was talking and said this, why would anyone want to come back from the dead you're already with Jesus. <laughs> That's insightful. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if these people complain, Lord, I don't want to go back there, but you know, if you want me to, I will. But they did, and people in the text most likely received their resurrection bodies at some point, uh, then were taken back up into heaven. They weren't allowed to stay there. What were they doing? They were there to witness. You guys, do you, do you understand what just happened over here on this hill? Do you understand that Jesus Christ is resurrected? Do you understand that I am proof of the resurrection? You know, five minutes ago, I was bones in a box. Or maybe I was a rotting corpse on a slab, and now I'm alive, and I'm here to tell you, it is real. It happened. Jesus raised me from the dead. And Matthew is the only one who gives us this information. You can't find it in any one of the Gospels except here. They most likely were not raised until after Jesus' resurrection because 1 Corinthians 15.23 says Christ is the first fruits, and now we know what that offering is. We know that it's the first of something to happen and it's given to God. He is the first fruits of those raised from the dead after his death. So I think they didn't come out until after his resurrection. And so there they are bearing witness to the power of God. They probably were going into the city in broad daylight. They appeared to many people. This wasn't hidden somewhere. Can you imagine your dead father showing up at your house? Uh, Dad, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know. Well, let me tell you. Jesus Christ gave me the power of resurrection. And he can give you that power if you'll trust him as your savior. These folks were recognizable and many saw them. Why would God do that? What was his purpose? And I think it was the connection to the first fruits offering, first of all, and then also to prove Jesus can do what he says he can do. You know what? I've, I've got uh, every, so to speak, every egg in his basket. And I'm counting on what he said. I'm not counting on any other religious system. I'm not counting on any other so-called God in the world. I'm counting on one God, and that's Jesus Christ. 
and I am counting on him to save me. And I have given everything I have for that one God. And if he isn't the right God, then I'm not going to make it because I've given no room in my life for any other God, just him. And I did what he told me to do when I was eight years old. He said, you had to repent of your sins and trust that he died on the cross in your place. So my dad helped me do that when I was in my bunk bed at eight years old before bed one night. And I made a decision, and I remember making it, and I remember Dad leading me in that. That's when I said, I am a sinner, and I want you to forgive me, and I want you to come take residence in my life. And he does, he does that through the Holy Spirit of God, and Jesus forgave me. And so when I do a funeral, I tell people, if you want to get out of this grave and go to a good place, you must trust Jesus as your Savior. If you don't want to go to a good place, then just disregard everything I'm saying. Some righteous dead rose from the grave and they represented the harvest of souls that Jesus will win and of the harvest in the great resurrection to come, proof that he can raise people from the dead. Do you believe that happened? Do you believe that was true? Why wouldn't I? Would it, why wouldn't I just believe because, uh, you know, personally I didn't see it, so would I say, well, I can't believe it because I didn't see it? I don't operate like that. I don't think you do either. There are certain people tell us stuff, you believe them. And you don't make them prove it. And I believe God. is It's my experience uh, sometimes that helps me and sometimes not. I, I don't believe that it is my experience at the end of the day that makes me uh, be able to judge something true or false. It's the truth of the word of God that gives us that power. All right? Years and years ago, one of my cousins was uh, down changing some water and some irrigation pipe on what we called the Crick Place. I know some of you say creek, just bear with me, okay? Uh, we called it the creek. I don't know why, but it's the creek. Anyway, he was down there by himself. He was 11 miles from the main farm out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he liked to do things all hours of the day and night. It was already dark. He went down to uh, shut some gates off on some alfalfa and open some more irrigation gates in the pipe. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, if not, just take my word for it. Anyway, he gets done. He's in his old Chevy pickup, and he starts up out of the bottom of the creek place, all these trees there, which are unusual for McDonald, Kansas, but he comes up on the other side, and you go on this ridge next to this pasture on this road, and you can see the whole creek bottom. And he got there, and he shut off his lights, and he shut off the pickup, and he didn't move. Why? Because he said there were three lights, three orbs, if you will, and they were darting up and down the creek and over across the top of the trees. And one would move and the other would move. And they went up and down and they'd sit there for a while. And he just sat there scared to death. And uh, finally they left. So he started his pickup and turned the lights on and drove back home. I wasn't there. But the guy's not a liar. And he, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen him afraid of anything. I think he saw something. And it had to be some kind of UFO. Even the government now has released footage on UFO, and they believe in it. And I believe him. I wasn't there. I am not the judge of it, except for I took somebody who tells the truth. And whatever had happened, to him it was very real. So I'm saying it's going to happen. And there's people that I can trust from the Old Testament. And you might think the UFO thing is pretty bizarre, but you know what? Seeing people that have raised from the dead, that'll change your day for you. Uh, that'll make you stop and think, boy, <laughs> do I really believe this? Well, I want us to believe it. I want us to believe it happened. How can I say I believe in my own resurrection from the dead and then think, well, this is just a made-up story by Matthew? God doesn't do that. Well, if he doesn't do it for them, he doesn't do it for you. 
uh, Paul had a, had a real stern talk with the Corinthian church about the reality of the resurrection in chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians. You can read it later. The centurion, a pagan Gentile who had no claim with Judaism at all, saw the results of the earthquake, and he and other soldiers were frightened. Don't forget that they had also been standing in the dark in the middle of the day for at least three hours. They have heard the things Jesus has said from the cross, the promise he made to an unbelieving criminal that was dying because he should die on the cross next to him. Talk about great prison reform. That's Jesus. They heard all that he had to say to the Father and to the people around him. So the centurion, a Gentile, expresses faith in Jesus. While religious leaders stood at a distance, mocking Jesus Christ, making fun of Jesus Christ, saying, if he's anything, Elijah will show up. If he's a nothing, Elijah won't show up. And Elijah didn't show up. And they continued to believe that he was absolutely nothing. He stated this centurion that Jesus was truly the Son of God. He also praised God with these words from Luke 23, 47, where he said, certainly this man was innocent. This Gentile professional soldier stands as yet another witness to you and I that we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. Then the last section in 55 to 56, there are some women there of reputable faith who witnessed these events as well. And in the first century, the testimony of a woman didn't mean anything in court, but it means something to me today. Yes, they said it was Jesus, and he did die. These friends of Jesus witnessed it. Yes, two of these women saw Jesus alive and resurrected. Can you believe them? I do. Women were at the crucifixion site. Uh, they would not have caused concern for the Roman uh, soldiers there. Women showed up to those often. They saw and heard what Jesus had to say from the cross. Mary heard Jesus assign John to be the new caretaker of, of Jesus' mother. Can you believe them? As someone said, Jesus refused to save himself so that he could save others. Let me just personalize that and restate it and say this. He refused to save himself so he could save you. So he could save you. He proved he could resurrect the dead. So you would believe that he can do that for you. Do you? Other than false religions and fantasy about death, do you have a reliable plan to deal with your own death? Are you sure? Is it going to work? Luke 7.23, Jesus said these words, and I quote, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Have you been offended by Jesus? How dare he even, even say that he would send anybody to hell? What kind of an unloving God is that? Does he offend you? Does he offend you by saying you're a sinner and you need his help? Does that offend you? Blessed are those who are not offended at Jesus Christ. Well, some people say they believe in Jesus but what do you believe about Jesus? Lots of people believe that Jesus was real, and he, lots of them believe he died on the cross, but they don't trust that for the forgiveness of their sins. Is it that he will let you into heaven because you're good, and that's what you believe about Jesus? Hey, he was a good guy. He loved everybody. He loves me. He's going to let me in for no good reason, except that I'm, I must be, I'm a pretty great guy. 
when the Bible says there's no righteousness in us at all? Or is it that you believe he is God? And you think, well, because I believe he's God, I get to go to heaven. What about that? Even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19 says. And demons aren't going to heaven. But James says, you believe God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that, and they're not going to heaven. What do you really believe about Jesus? That's the issue. There's only one thing you can believe that gets you salvation. Number one, he is the son of God, the savior of the world that he lived a perfect life and he gave up that life on that cross for you and me and he came back to life again to prove that he could give you life. And so when we believe, we're saying, God, I confess to you I am a sinner. I have nothing to offer you for salvation. I have nothing you want. I need everything you give me. I need need your righteousness. I need your forgiveness I need, I need you to s- declare that I'm saved because I had faith in you. That's what I need. And that's what I did when I was eight years old. doesn't matter how old you are. If you understand, you just have to say the same thing. Jesus Christ, I know I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? I want you to be my Savior. I believe that you paid for my sins on the cross. You say that in faith, you just became a believer. And God will give you heaven. And one of the things we do while we're waiting for that is that we remember the Lord's Supper. And if you have the cup that they gave you, uh, there's 